Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's not surprising that women are less confident than men on average, because if you look at all the dents to her confidence that a woman experiences through being ignored, interrupted, patronized, underestimated, having her authority challenged at every step, of course she's going to feel less confident than a man who just doesn't have that sort of thing happen to him generally. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. My guest today, Marianne Seagart, has written a book called The Authority Gap, and in it she fleshes out a study that sees tens of thousands of hours of transcripts of the Supreme Court's proceedings, in, this is in the US, analysed for interruptions. The study's authors were on a mission to count how many times male versus female justices were interrupted. So what were the results? Well, they found that although women made up a third of the justices, they had to put up with two-thirds of all interruptions. In other words, they were four times more likely to be interrupted than the blokes, 96% of the time by male advocates or justices. There was a similar study done in Australia's High Court, which found that men interrupted female justices even more when there was a female chief justice presiding. So this interrupting thing, which happens even with women who are at the top of their game, the best in their field, says Marianne, is one of the key signifiers of this authority gap, whereby she writes, we assume a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise, while for women, well, we assume they don't. And so we shout over the top of them. It's a thing. It's a big thing, as any woman listening to this can no doubt attest to. Okay, so Marianne is a London journalist who's written for The Economist, The Independent, The Financial Times, and she was assistant editor at The Times for 20 years, as well as a presenter on BBC Radio and BBC TV. She's also the chair of the Judges for the Women's Prize for Fiction and holds countless positions as chair and director on boards and trusts and think tanks and art galleries across the UK. She's spent her entire career been interrupted and proving she might, you know, know something. But in this episode, Marianne joins me wonderfully on the eve of the 10-year anniversary of former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard's infamous misogyny speech to talk, and to quote the subtitle of her book, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. And also, and here's the wild idea, why closing this authority gap benefits men as much as women. 
And I should say that Julia Gillard, also a seasoned interruptee, was interviewed for Marianne's book. This chat is full of eye-popping digi-nos. We cover how men's art sells for 10 times as much as art that is produced by women, how female real estate agents get higher prices for their properties, how governments run by women have less corruption, and how the more gender parity there is in a relationship, a workplace, in a country, the happier and healthier the men are and the higher the GDP. I encourage everyone, especially the blokes here, to listen to the full rolling interview, especially to the part where we talk about how we can achieve this win-win-win gender parity world. And I should just flag that ironically, due to the ongoing bloody dodginess of internet in my area, there was a three-second delay between Marianne in London and me in Sydney, which meant we found ourselves interrupting each other awkwardly at times. And regrettably, the interview runs a little bit stilted, I feel. So you'll have to forgive me on this occasion. Welcome to Wild, Marianne. So lovely to have you here. Lovely to be here. Look, there are so many ways that we could skin this cat and spell out how the authority gap works. But I think one of the most compelling pieces of proof in your book is, I guess, when you look at the experiences of transgender people, I'm wondering if you can explain those particular studies and and what you found from those studies of two transgender people in particular. I found this completely fascinating because if you're a woman Suppose you're up against a man for promotion or for a job and he gets it and you don't. You may suspect that bias was at play, but it's incredibly hard to prove, isn't it? Because you're different people and he may just genuinely be better than you. So what's so interesting about talking to trans people is that they are exactly the same person before and after they transition. So they've got the same ability, intelligence, personality, experience. And if they are treated quite differently once people perceive them as being of the opposite gender, then what you've managed to do is to control for all the other variables and isolate the only one that matters, which is gender. And guess what? (laughs) Trans men report that after they've transitioned, they are treated with so much more respect and they can get away with much more and they're listened to more attentively and their pay goes up faster. And trans women find exactly the opposite. Yeah. That suddenly people are ignoring them, they're underestimating them, they're patronizing them, they're talking over them. And I use the example of two Stanford science professors who happened to transition in opposite directions at the same time. And they used to meet up and compare notes. And Ben Barris, who was a neuroscience professor, said once he started living as a man, he said, I've had the thought a million times, I'm just taken more seriously now. My work's taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously now that people see me as a man. And someone who didn't know his history was overheard at the back of one of his seminars saying, oh, Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's. I his own work. <laughs> so they're referring to him, but when he was female. Oh my goodness. Exactly. Exactly. When he was living as a woman, assumed it was his sister. It was actually him. Yeah. <laughs> and then Joan Roughgarden is an evolutionary biologist. And she transitioned in the opposite direction. And she said when she was living as a young man, she just felt like she was on this conveyor belt to success. 
everything was so easy and her pay kept going up. She kept getting promoted. She won a seat on the university senate committee. And once she transitioned, all that changed. So she lost her seat on the university senate committee. Her relative pay compared to her contemporaries started falling. And most of all, she came up against all these instances of behavior which result from the authority gap, which I write about in, in my book. So being underestimated, being interrupted, not having her voice listened to unless the point is made by a man later on in the meeting and then everybody applauds it. Being personally attacked, which had never happened to her, she said, when she was a man. So people would say things to her like, well, you clearly haven't read the literature or you don't understand the statistics. She was gobsmacked by this because it never happened to her before. And to start with, she said, well, if I'm going to live as a woman, I'm darn well going to be discriminated against like a woman. And then she said, well, the thrill of that's worn off, I can tell you. Yeah, it's fascinating. When I read that part in the book, I thought this was probably the most telling way to show the discrepancy, the, the very different experiences for men and women, particularly in the workplace, where you've got two people who've got similar jobs, who wind up doing exactly the same job before and after their transition. And we can't put it down to any kind of uh, prejudice against trans people. It really is about male versus female treatment. I mean, Marianne, you did so many studies for this book, or I suppose read so many of these studies, reported on them, and spoke to so many different women from around the world. But I'm really intrigued as to how you have experienced the authority gap. You're a, a senior journalist. You would be considered at the top of your game. I can only expect that you've experienced it at some point. I've experienced it a lot. Uh, I mean, I tell a couple of stories in the book about it. Uh, one was that I was at a conference, quite, quite a high-level international conference, and I was talking to two men. One was a former head of the Foreign Office here in the UK, and the other was a BBC foreign correspondent. Now, both of these men know much more about foreign affairs than I do. But I was the expert in that group on British politics because I'd spent about 25 years of my life writing a column about British politics for the Times and the Independent. And this third man comes up to our group, looks at the two men, completely ignores me and says, uh, can I ask you something about British politics? Do you think Tony Blair could ever make a comeback? So I answer, because I'm the expert there. And I say, no, not a chance. And I explain why and about the state of the Labour Party at the time and that sort of thing. He can hardly bring himself to look at me while I'm answering the question and then asks a follow-up question of the two men. Yes. So I actually have to touch his arm to make him look in my direction and say to him, look, actually, I'm the expert in British politics in this group. I do actually know what I'm talking about. So the next day I said to him, oh, I really want to thank you. And he looked rather pleased with himself and said, ooh, why? And I said, well, you've given me a wonderful case study for the book I'm writing. So he looked even more pleased with himself. And he said, why, what is it? And I explained what he'd done the day before. And he said, I didn't do that. And I said, well, you did. Yeah. And he looked very embarrassed and, and wandered off and then came back about five minutes later. He'd obviously been thinking about it. And he said, look, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I did that, but it was only because I didn't know who you were. And I said, but you didn't know who the two men were either. You just assumed because they were men, they knew more about it than I did. It was just a classic example. And these things happen every day to women all over the world. You know, you walk into a meeting with a man who's more junior than you and 
the other people address all their questions to the man. You, you know, he might even be the intern, but because he's male, they assume he has more authority than you. That's the sort of thing that happens a lot. It's a really intriguing one as well. I think when you're a woman who is in the public eye, perhaps, or is paid to have an opinion of some sort, academics, people in media, and I find this happens very often. I find I've got a mind map every single scenario. Am I allowed to put forward my opinion? How should I do it? Should I try to sound like a man or should I try to sound kind of humble? Like I don't really know what I'm talking about so that I don't threaten the men that I'm speaking to. And I think in the book, I think you might be quoting somebody else, but you essentially say that to be a woman and to have an opinion is it's sort of the short skirt of the internet. You know, and I thought that was a really good line. You sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And what strikes me reading all the examples throughout the book is how exhausting it is because we can't just get on with knowing what we know and getting on with our work and perhaps even learning from other people as well. We have to mind map continually. Is that something that you came across in the experience, you know, with the experiences that you looked at in the book? Yes, hugely. It is so much harder for a woman than for a man to get this right. And it is therefore, as you said, a, a big extra burden. It's mainly to do with confidence. Because you might say, well, the reason the authority gap exists is because on average, women are less confident than men. And if men are making their views known in a very confident way, then we're going to respect them more. And it's not surprising that women are less confident than men on average, because if you look at all the dents to her confidence that a woman experiences through being ignored, interrupted, patronized, underestimated, having her authority challenged at every step, you know, of course, she's going to feel less confident than a man who just doesn't have that sort of thing happen to him generally. But the trouble is, it's not as simple as just being more confident for a woman. So, you know, a lot of bosses will say, oh, just send her on an assertiveness training course and that will sort her out because it's, it's much more complicated than that. And the reason is that if we do behave as confidently and as assertively as our male colleagues, people don't like it. As you say, people find it threatening. Men in particular find it threatening, but also women a little bit. So if a woman behaves as confidently as a man, we're quite likely to call her horrible words like abrasive or strident or aggressive or bossy, overbearing, scary, even bitchy or ball-breaking for displaying exactly the same character traits as her male colleagues. Why? Because she's going against an incredibly old-fashioned and anachronistic stereotype that has somehow lodged itself somewhere in the deeper recesses of our brains that says that women have to be kind and warm and nurturing and unthreatening and unself-promoting and basically sort of demure. And yet, if they do act like that, they're not going to be taken seriously. So we have a choice between not being confident and assertive enough and being disrespected or being confident and assertive enough and being disliked. Because when we go against stereotype, it makes people feel uncomfortable and they start to dislike us for it. And you may say, oh, well, who cares about being disliked? We should just grow a thicker skin. The trouble is the evidence shows that likability is a much more important factor for women than it is for men when it comes to being promoted or being hired in the first place particularly if it's men doing the hiring or the promotion. So how do we get through this? Well, the answer is I discovered both from the research I looked at and from these women I interviewed that what we have to 
what we have to project is a sort of warm authority. We have to overlay warmth on top of our personality, on top of our authority, in order both to be taken seriously and not to be disliked. And that is very exhausting. As you say, you know, you, you have to read the room very carefully. You know, you've got to be really emotionally intelligent. You've got to smile a lot. You've got to use humor to defuse any hostility you might otherwise engender. And it's exhausting. And it's a burden that men don't have to bear. Yeah, I think on top of all of that, Marianne, is that, you know, while we're trying to work out the right way to be, is it too masculine, not masculine enough and all of that, it's the fact that we're actually doing that dance on top of trying to get our point across. And it's something that I don't think a lot of men really comprehend how exhausting it is, how much of a dance is going on in our head. It, it is exceedingly hard. But one thing you picked up on is this notion of confidence. And what I wouldn't mind doing is getting you to outline, I think, another study that was done on some 15-year-olds across nine different countries. And it was looking at male and female confidence, the confidence that these sort of teenagers had in themselves. Can you flesh out that particular study for everyone? Yes, there was this great study done of 40,000 15-year-olds in, in nine countries, and they were given a list of 16 mathematical concepts, and they were asked to rate their knowledge of each of them from never heard of it to know it well, understand the concept. And unknown to the teenagers, the researchers had actually inserted three fake concepts into the list. And in all nine countries, boys were much more likely to, than girls to claim that they knew and understood these fake concepts. And the scientific study, the paper in the scientific journal was actually called Bullshitters. Who are they? And what do we know about their lives? Boys are much more prone to bullshit and to blag than girls are. And men take that all the way through their lives. And in fact, one of the things I say in the book is that maybe rather than sending women on assertiveness training courses, we could send some men at least on bullshit avoidance courses because <laughs> bullshit is not good for competence. <laughs> It's not. It's not good for the planet, as we've seen with some world leaders. Um, I'm thinking US, Australia and the UK, <laughs> recent world leaders, well all of whom but we, we can say are no longer in power, but they managed to get away with a lot of bullshitting, that's for sure. You also picked up an interrupting, and I flag in the introduction these studies that were done, like extensive studies, I think, you know, 10, 15,000 hours of transcripts were studied. And what it found, of course, is that female justices in the US Supreme Court were interrupted at four times the rate of male justices. And a comparable study was done with the High Court in Australia. What I'd love to know, Marianne, is that what is the significance of been interrupted and also the significance of interrupting women. Like, what is that all about? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it, what those two studies showed was that however senior and authoritative you are as a woman, you're still going to suffer these interruptions, this disrespect for what you're saying. And in that US Supreme Court study, 96% of the interruptions of these women were by men. And what interrupting does is two things. First of all, it suggests to the woman that what the man has to say is more important and more interesting than what she has to say. And secondly, it literally silences her. So it is a power play. And it's a power play that men do much more on women than they do on other men. Now, that's not to say that women don't interrupt. Women interrupt too. 
but on average, women will interrupt much more in a positive way, you know, affirming what the other person is saying, saying, oh, yes, yes, or I agree, or something like that, which actually bolsters the person who's speaking and allows them to carry on. Whereas men, particularly when they're doing it to women, are much more likely to do it in a negative way, trying to shut them down. It's something that I've experienced just recently. I've been on a few podcasts where I've been interviewed by male podcast hosts. I hadn't noticed it myself because I think it's just so ingrained. I'm so used to it as a woman. But interestingly, it was just in the lead up to, to this interview with you, I had a number of men comment in sort of the comment section of something saying they were annoyed how often I was interrupted by these male hosts. It was on two separate occasions. And I thought that was really interesting. I didn't notice it, but the men did when it was sort of in that situation where the, the flow of the interview was interrupted. But what I was amazed by is how I was quite unaware of it. I mean, when it was pointed out to me, I'm like, yeah, it's frustrating, but it's kind of what we have to put up with all the time. And it is a very different experience having a discussion, a robust discussion with a woman as opposed to a man. It's a lot more collegiate. And if anything, I find myself sort of handing the conversation back a lot more to the woman. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't feel like you and I are in any way competing for conversational time or competing to be more authoritative than each other. You know, as you say, when you're talking to a woman, it feels very collaborative. Whereas I think men see it much more as a competition. They've got to have something more interesting to say than the person they're talking to. And particularly if that person's a woman, because otherwise they feel threatened. And I think this does start really young. I mean, it's systemic. It is so systemic. And so this is not about bashing men because, as we'll get to in a moment, men are being affected by this in a negative way as well. And in fact, the upside of closing the authority gap is massive for men. And we will get to that. But I think you've looked into a lot of studies that show when this sort of gap, this behavior, this difference in behavior between men and women really starts to happen. And it's sort of, we see it happen in studies that are done on children. And there was one that stood out again, and you know, I've taken furious notes all the way through your book with these various studies, because they're real water cooler stoppers, aren't they? Like, you remember these kinds of studies. But there was one that looked at the difference between when boys and girls called called out in a classroom and how the teacher, whether she she was a woman or whether he was a male teacher, the reaction was very similar. Can you spell out that study for us? Yes, this one showed that if boys call out an answer in a classroom, teachers will take notice of it. And if girls call out, they're much more likely to be told, put your hand up if you want to speak. Boys get eight times as much classroom attention on average than girls do from teachers. Now, that may partly be because boys tend to be more disruptive than girls. And so sometimes a teacher will call on a boy to answer a question to try to bring him back into the class. But it's also because boys are much more likely to put their hand up before they even know the answer, whereas girls might wait until they're sure and then it's too late. But the net result of all this is that girls tend to be rewarded for being quiet and well-behaved and boys get rewarded for speaking up. And as a result, boys take up a disproportionate amount of classroom time and they get used to that sense of entitlement of being allowed to take up disproportionate talking time. And that continues well into adulthood. So in every public setting, whether it's work or a national parliament or university seminar or questions and answers after a, a talk, men will talk for more time than women. And if women do talk for the same amount of time as men, 
we actually perceive them to have dominated the conversation. Because we're so unused to it, we actually think a woman has talked too much if she's just taken up proportionate conversational time. I mean, anyone who has sat at a book festival <laughs> and there's questions <laughs> at the end, you see a particular kind of bloke stand up and you know you're going to be in for a long question. And generally it's a comment, not a question, yeah, um, yeah. particularly of a female author. I'm sure you've experienced that, Marianne. I certainly have. And actually, um, studies show that if the first person you call upon to ask a question is a woman, more women are likely to follow suit. So I always, if I'm, if I'm the one either chairing a, you know, a panel discussion or taking questions after a talk, I always try and find a woman, ideally a young one, to ask the first question. Yeah, to get things rolling. But yes, men are so likely to stand up and pontificate. A certain type of man, as you say. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Those studies with kids in particular really got me thinking about the fact that, well, just the way that I treat my nieces and nephews, I've got a bunch of them who are all the same age and there's, you know, little girls and little boys and also with the foster kids that I look after. I find myself using the phraseology good girl when, you know, my niece or one of my foster kids, you know, manages to do something really well, whatever it might be. And when it's one of the boys, I say clever boy. Oh. And, you know, aren't you clever? It's terrible. Ooh. I mean, what I should say is I'm aware of it. So I'm constantly mindful and really try to shift it around. But I am aware of how it is ingrained in me. You know, it's, it's obviously how I grew up. You know, I grew up with four brothers and one sister. And I would say that we got treated evenly, like there was a lot of gender parity to the extent that I never owned a doll um, and we all had the same toys. And it, we, you know, that was sort of the expectation. I was expected to be just as physically capable um, as my brothers. That phraseology, I've been really thinking about it, Marianne, since I started reading your book, that it's, it's definitely in there. It's, it's in my brain. It's in my reactions to my nieces and nephews. It's horrible. It is. But, you know, I do it too. I find myself, well, I try not to, but instinctively, you know, wanting to uh, compliment a little girl on either how pretty she is or how pretty her dress is. So we, we will compliment girls for being ornamental and boys for being instrumental. You know, d aren't you good at kicking a football? So you're basically rewarding boys for being good at things, for doing stuff, and girls for just looking good. And that's what they internalize as they get older, isn't it? Teenagers in particular. Of course, this plays out at you know the leadership level, and we've talked about that a little, but it also plays out in, in the arts and in literature. And I think you point out in your book that a male artist will get 10 times the price for his artwork as a woman artist, even if they've got comparable quality artwork. 
and also plays out in literature, doesn't it, in the, the habits of male and female readers of books? Yes, it does. I mean, the art statistics are just shocking. It's the biggest gender pay gap I've ever come across, I think. Yeah, that's incredible. Ten times. Yeah, it was amazing. There was a, a fascinating study done because, you know, you might think to yourself, well, maybe men are just better artists than women. You know, you've got to at least um, investigate this theory. And so one female professor of finance at Oxford did this. And what she did was, first of all, she showed people five paintings by men and five by women and asked them to identify whether the painter was male or female. They absolutely couldn't do it. Their, their guesses were no better than chance. So that shows that you know, men are not obviously much better painters than women. But then what she did was she showed art aficionados, so middle-aged wealthy men who visited galleries, the sort of people who are collectors, exactly the same painting generated by AI, and she randomly assigned it a male or a female name. And if it was given a male name, these uh, art collectors valued it more highly and liked it more than if it was given a female name. Exactly the same painting, the same piece of art. But on books, th this is also very interesting. So it's bad enough if women aren't accorded authority for what they say or what they write. So if it's not bad enough that men quite often don't accord us the authority we deserve when we say something or write something, it's even worse if they're not even listening to us or reading us in the first place. And what I discovered was that women on average will read roughly 50-50 books written by men and books written by women. For men, the ratio is 80-20. So in other words, they will read four books by a man for every one book by a woman. And that means that it's not just that they're not according us equal authority. They're just not even reading our views in the first place. How can they decide whether we're authoritative or not if they're not even reading us? And men will often say when I make this point, oh, well, you know, you write about subjects that we're not interested in. And I sort of think, well, that's not taking the argument any further because we're prepared to be interested in your subjects and your books, but you're not prepared to be interested in ours. So it's as if your brains are sort of half closed and ours are completely open. Yeah, it's a really good point. This argument that somehow we're not as good as men at things, therefore we don't accord the same respect and time and number of pages in, in books read, there is really absolutely no basis to it at all, is there? There's no biological or evolutionary basis to it, apart from, I think, you know, maybe a difference in upper body strength, which really doesn't come into handy all that often in 2022. And I think Yuval Noah Harari in History of Humankind, that epic book that he wrote some time back, I remember reading in his book, Marianne, that he actually goes through all the biological reasons for sort of gender discrimination. And he actually says, there is no basis whatsoever for any of the arguments put forward to suggest that women are in any way inferior to men. Have you come across anything in your studies, and I'm sure you've looked for it, that could suggest a basis for this distinction? I really haven't. So if you look at intelligence distributions, they are identical for men and women, except at the very far end of the IQ spectrum. So there are actually many more men, boys and men, than women at the bottom end, and slightly more at the very, very top end. So basically, we have the same brains. And if you look at academic performance, girls outperform boys at every single level of education from kindergarten through to PhD level. So 
there you're looking at objective performance. You know, you're tested in exams. Bias can't come into play. The exam papers are anonymous. Girls outperform boys and women outperform men. If you look at leadership evaluation, so once you're in the workplace, women actually make marginally better leaders than men. And they are rated more highly by the people who work for them than men are. So there's no sense that women are less competent in the workplace. And there have been all sorts of individual studies showing that female doctors produce better outcomes for patients. Female estate agents sell their houses for higher prices than male estate agents do. You know, women are every bit as competent as men and sometimes even better. There is really no excuse for this. And funnily enough, even some of the character traits that we attribute to men and often do so from an evolutionary basis. You know, look, look at competitiveness, say. So men are thought to be more competitive than women, generally are. And I think that's partly because for all the stereotype reasons I talked about earlier, we don't like women being competitive, makes us feel uncomfortable. And so they tend to rein in their competitiveness. But a lot of people will say, well, of course, men are more competitive. It's biologically and evolutionary determined. You know, they had to go out and hunt mammoths while women were just picking berries or, you know, they had to compete more for mates. So men are just naturally more competitive. Well, if that were true, then it would be the same in all societies, in all geographies, at all times. And it isn't. So there was a very good study done by some economists of a matriarchal society in India called the Kazi and a patriarchal society in Tanzania, the Maasai. And they compared their levels of competitiveness. And the, in the Kazi study, the women were more competitive than the men. In the Maasai's, the men were more competitive than the women. But not only were they more competitive than the men, they were more competitive actually than Maasai men. So that just suggests that it's socially conditioned. It's how we're brought up. It's not what's in our genes or our hormones. I remember reading in the book, you interview Mike Ran, who was a former Premier of South Australia, and I've sat on a few panels with him in the past. He's a, he's a great human being. And he makes the point that in his experience working in politics for decades is that women read the briefs far often than men do. They're across the gig far more than male politicians are. And what he says is that women often have to go the extra mile to prove themselves, but what that actually does is it raises the bar. And he says that the standard of parliamentary behaviour has lifted from having more women in parliament. And I think that speaks volumes as well. We could go into all the reasons why, and I think we can all agree it's systemic. It goes back a long, long way. But I think it'll be really interesting to talk through, I guess, the win-win-wins of changing our ways, actually closing the authority gap. And you make the point that it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like when women get gains, men somehow lose out. In fact, the data says the absolute opposite. There's a bunch of wins for men once they get into a position or they find themselves in a position where there's a lot more parity. At a personal level, you know, for starters, they, they're less likely to get divorced. You know, what are some other things that really play out for men when they find themselves either in a relationship or in a workplace situation where there's a lot more parity? Yeah, this really cheered me up, actually, because I had thought I was going to have to appeal to men's better instincts, to their altruism, to their sense of fairness and justice. But no, it turns out more gender equality is very much in their interests too. So 
numerous studies have shown that both in more gender equal relationships, straight relationships, obviously, in which the couple share the chores equally and share the childcare equally, and in more gender equal countries and societies, not only are the women happier and healthier, which you would expect, and children are happier and healthier, and they do better at school, and they have fewer behavioral difficulties, and they get on much better with their dads, but also the men are healthier and happier. So they're twice as likely to say they're satisfied with their lives. They are half as likely to be depressed, much less likely to get divorced. They tend to drink less, smoke less, take fewer drugs. And here's the absolute clincher. They get more frequent and better sex. So guys, what's not to life? (laughs) (laughs) This is really in your interest. I think you quote a male academic in the book and he says, you know, men only need to change a little to gain great improvements, but they just don't realize it. They actually think it's a much bigger change that they've got to make. And so they get all kinds of resistance, you know? Exactly. I, I read a review on Amazon of the book of a woman who said, I put the audio book on in the car on a long journey with my husband and it has completely transformed him. He actually listens to what I say now and he asks me questions. And I thought, this is fantastic. If I can just change the world one husband at a time, I will be very happy. And it's such a small thing. It's so easy for him to do. And she's really delighted as a result. It's not a massive change to make. But yeah, more broadly at a societal level, there are massive boons to be had as well. When you take female leaders and you have a look at the climate outcomes, they're much larger than when you compare them with, say, countries led by men. And it's the same with COVID, right? Like, I think you had a look into that during the pandemic. Yes, that's right. On on average, countries led by women had many fewer deaths from COVID than countries led by men because they tended to lock down earlier. Uh, they took fewer risks with people's health. They took more risks, perhaps, with the economy, but fewer risks with people's health. And I think they probably led in a more empathetic style. So I know Jacinda Ardern was very much praised for the way in which she led New Zealand through the pandemic. I know there was quibbles towards the end. But nonetheless, I think female leaders showed how good they were during the pandemic. But with GDP as well, because I think, you know, I think that's always been a criticism that women aren't as great at managing the economy. But in fact, the data says otherwise in this respect as well. Yes. So Christine Lagarde, who's now president of the European Central Bank, she authored a paper which showed that countries ranked in the bottom 50% for gender inequality could boost their GDP by 35% if they closed the gender gap. That is enormous. That would make an enormous difference. And McKinsey estimates that if all countries in a region match the rate of gender quality improvement to the best one, this could add $12 trillion or 11% to annual global GDP. Now, I know it's hard to get those sort of figures into your head, but that's equivalent to the current GDP of Germany, Japan, and the UK combined. So huge gains to be made for men as well as women. I also really loved the amplification strategy that some of Barack Obama's female team members, senior team members, um, put in place to combat some of this stuff. Can you just talk that one through for us? Yes, it was during Obama's first term. And at the morning political meeting, there were three women and quite a lot of men. And the women found that they just weren't being listened to. The men were just talking over them, ignoring what they were saying. And the women just couldn't get their points across. So they devised what they called this amplification strategy, which was whenever one woman made a point, 
the other two would come in and say, oh, yes, great idea. That's a great point. Yes, we must definitely do that. And the men started to take notice. And actually, Obama himself noticed they were doing it and asked them about it and was really apologetic afterwards because, of course, he hadn't noticed the pattern of behavior that they had. But this is very important because women's voices do tend to get ignored. And we often blame ourselves for it. You know, you make a point at a meeting and no one takes a blind bit of notice. And then a guy makes exactly the same point 10 minutes later and everybody tells him how brilliant he is. And when this happens, we tend to beat ourselves up and we think, oh, well, you know, probably I wasn't confident enough or I wasn't articulate or eloquent enough. No, you were just too female. There was this great study done where the researchers put actually a mixed gender group of people together, ostensibly to discuss a child custody case. And they deliberately chose this topic because it's actually quite female stereotyped. And they gave the group all sorts of information about the family concerned. But they gave a couple of individuals a piece of information that the rest of the group didn't have. And when that information was introduced by a man, it was six times more likely to be used by the group in its deliberations than when it was introduced by a woman. Six times more likely. Gosh, it's frustrating. I know, it's so frustrating. So my advice is, suppose you, Sarah, make a point at a meeting and no one takes any notice. Exactly this happens, right? Then when a man makes the same point 10 minutes later, someone else in that group, you know, I or whoever's chairing the group should say, oh, I'm so glad you agree with what Sarah said earlier. So <laughs> you call out that sort of behavior in a slightly humorous way, but you will make the man think, I've been rumbled. And you'll make the other people in the group think, oh yeah, Sarah did make that point earlier. I wonder why I didn't latch onto it then. You have to call out this behavior, not ideally not in an aggressive way, or it will rebound on you, maybe in a gently humorous way. Well, we've got to do it for each other. Yeah, we've got to do it for each other. That's the point. And I think the opportunity is for men to do it. Men need to join us and support this movement as well, because I think you've made the point very clearly, they've got a lot of wins to be had. Look, I've taken up so much of your time. It's 10 years since Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, and I know that you interviewed her for the book and you talked about this particular speech. I think it was a brilliantly orchestrated speech, but of course it had to be, didn't it? Because it had to be right on point. It couldn't be mediocre. She had to mind map and think through exactly the right tone to ensure that it cut through. And I remember thinking at the time when I watched it, I had shivers going through me. So much energy, so much smart energy was put into making a fairly simple point. And I got exhausted by watching it. And I've watched it again recently. And I'm going to put a link to the speech for everybody listening in the show notes, because it is worth watching again, 10 years on just to sort of see, well, how, how it lands a decade later. But Marianne, I'm wondering, I felt at the time that, you know, I saw it, you know, on the news in the evening and I thought, wow, this is electrifying, but it didn't go much further until 24 hours later, it went ballistic in the US, in the UK, and all across Europe, and the Twitter sphere went mental. Everybody was talking about it overseas. Did you feel that it was a really big deal overseas? I've got to say, I don't think it became a big deal in Australia until we saw everybody overseas getting outraged by it. Is that what you felt? Did you talk to Julia Gillard about this? Yes, I did. And I, you know, it was completely, it was a blistering speech, wasn't it? And I remember at the time thinking how amazing and how brilliant she was. And she made the point to me after as well, it went down well overseas, but it didn't go down well 
at home. I mean, obviously you appreciated it, but uh, you know, I don't think she was appreciated in Australia nearly as much as, as she was overseas. And she told me that she waited too long, actually, with hindsight to call out the sexism she experienced. And boy, did she experience sexism. I mean, it was really, really horrible. She said to start with, she thought she'd ride it out because it was an early phase. And she said, um, the longer I was prime minister, the more the nation would get used to there being a female prime minister and that these sexist critiques would diminish over time. And then she said, what I actually found was that they grew over, the, over time. And because I'd left it and not called it out early, it was harder to call it out later. Yes. So the lesson from my own experience is call it out early. I mean, there were fascinating studies done of her treatment. I mean, obviously horrible horrible critiques of her body and her appearance and her, her lack of ball. children and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, there was one analysis comparing the media treatment of her and Malcolm Turnbull. And of course, both of them challenged rivals in their own party to become leader. But when Gillard toppled Kevin Rudd to become prime minister, nearly 50% of the articles contained words like murderer, backstabbing, knifing, decapitation, brutal, ruthless assassination and execute, 50%. And she was compared to Lady Macbeth. Yes, I remember. <laughs> yes. And when Turnbull toppled Tony Abbott, only 12% of the articles were negative, And he was described as brilliant, successful, clever, cunning, ambitious, had political skills and gravitas, and had taken back the reins. I mean, that just shows the double standards, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the big lesson out of all of that is really to call things out earlier rather than later, not to wait and think that things will settle because it is too entrenched, isn't it? And it is going to take proactive behaviour from all of us, like the amplification strategy, you know, that Barack Obama's team instigated. It's that kind of stuff we're going to have to do to see the, the shift to close this, this authority gap. Do you have hope for the future, given this sort of stark information that you've had to wade through? <laughs> I do have hope. I mean, women have made a lot of progress. And, you know, there are more women in senior jobs now than there were 10 years ago, a lot more than there were 20 years ago, still not enough. But what I'm talking about are the everyday interactions between women and men and between women and women, but more between women and men. And I think a lot of men, most men probably aren't even aware of the authority gap. And I think bringing it to their attention may change at least some of their behavior and that will be an improvement. So I think just all of us being more aware of it should make things improve. Yeah, I think that's a lovely note to finish on. Hey, Marianne, thank you so much for your time. This has been eye-opening. I've really enjoyed delving into this um, realm and feel more fired up than ever to watch my own language, my own speech, my own biases, because I have them as well. Thanks for bringing it all to light. Oh, you're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, I feel I have been talking this stuff my entire life and I almost feel desensitized by it, like I'm over it. But this interview and the way we break down the information to present a picture where if we make these small changes and if men in particular make these small changes, but also women, we can all win out. It's a really compelling argument, I feel. It's things like, you know, what the Obama staffers do, the amplification strategy where we back a woman's point in a meeting or a conversation. And it's also things like addressing a woman first in a conversation and watching how we deal with kids. This is a big one for me, you know, using language like clever instead of good when we're talking to young girls. 
I think this chat has actually revived my interest in continuing to get women heard and taken seriously, especially in a country, and I'm talking Australia, where the gender gap is one of the widest in the Western world and has grown in the past 15 years. In the conversation, I mentioned the Global Gender Gap Index that's put together by the World Economic Forum. And I'll just take an opportunity to spell out the frightening statistics. So when comparing Australia in 2021, so last year, to 2006, the nation has fallen from 12th to 70th place in the disparity between men and women in economic participation and opportunity, from 57th to 99th place in health and survival, and from 32nd to 54th in political empowerment. I mean, they are massive drops. Women in Australia, you are not making this stuff up. Australia has become increasingly more sexist over the last, well, 15 years. And of course, Julia Gillard's misogyny speech was made smack bang in the middle of all of this in 2012. I've actually put a link to the speech in the show notes as well. And I really encourage all of you to listen to it again now in 2022 with some hindsight. And I'll close by issuing this hopeful suggestion that with the recent change of government and the work done by Grace Tame, Chantal Contes, Brittany Higgins and so on to call out misogyny, we will see a much needed closing of the authority gap in coming years. All right. Well, stay connected with me um, via my Substack newsletter, via Instagram. Please tell your friends about this podcast. Share it around. Don't forget to rate it, to give it five stars. This helps me out enormously. Always feel free to provide comments, ask questions, give suggestions for guests going forward. The best place to do that is on Substack. That's where I do most of my engagement these days. Anyway, until next week, stay wild. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.